as we wrap up our series today, our Impact World series, going through the book of Acts. We have looked through the entire book of Acts, all 28 chapters, and today we continue our study by looking at chapter 29. We'll be getting to that as we go through, and the nature of today being a a review and summary and challenge to us is a little bit different in its nature. You'll notice there are a lot more spaces for you to fill in in your program. Fear not, we're going to not hit everything in the book of Acts all at once, but we will uh, work through the concepts that we have seen as we see how everything that happened in chapters 1 through 28 leads to us today, the church, the church of Jesus Christ, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, operating in God's purposes, we are carrying this out. And so for our text today, I would invite you to turn to the book of Ephesians. Yes, Ephesians. We're studying Acts. We're going to look at Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. So if you were getting ahead of the game and you were looking at the book of Acts, keep that marked. But just a little bit to the right of that, the books start to get smaller in the New Testament. You go past Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians, you get to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. In the second half of the book of Acts, we focused heavily on the Apostle Paul. He is the one who is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And in chapter 2, he says this, As for you, speaking to the church, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly you, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Amen and amen. Father, as we open your word today and look back on the book of Acts, just just make us aware that nothing has changed. The things that make this powerful narrative in the book of Acts are still active and true today. May we never forget this. We offer this time to you, Father, and we ask that you would protect us from human opinion, that we would find the truth of your word by your Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we've been working through this, we, uh, we've gone through the entire book, we've seen all the details, so I'm not going to rehash that, although it's really tempting. i got to tell you, when I was kind of working through how I wanted to structure this, I really wanted to take you on a review tour and, and spin through each of these chapters, but we wouldn't get done until like 3 o'clock by, by the time we got finished with that. But understand this, the book of Acts is still being written today as the Holy Spirit empowers believers to testify to the reality of Christ until His glorious return. The the book of Acts is really summed up, you can turn there if you would, in the first chapter. What we see in the first ten verses, really the first eight, but the thought is completed in the first ten, is Dr. Luke having told us the gospel story of Jesus in his earthly ministry in the book that bears his name. Now in volume 2, the Acts of the Apostles here, he is showing us what happens as Jesus, who has gone up to see the Father, we'll see that here in the next few moments, continues his work in the person of the Holy Spirit. Luke writes this, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day He was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles He had chosen. After His suffering, He presented Himself to them 
So in, in other words, after he went through the, what we call the passion of the Christ, this suffering, the humiliation, the execution, uh, his death in our place, after he suffered, we know that he rose again. How do we know that? Because he presented himself to his followers in the days that followed. After his suffering, verse 3, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So before we even get into the rest of this, this is Luke talking. Luke wasn't there yet. He comes along later. We'll see him around chapter 16 as he connects up with Paul. But he's writing, having researched all of these things, having spoken to those who were present. And Jesus manifested himself. He showed up. He was physically, literally present among the followers after they watched him die, after he was buried in the tomb. But praise God, he didn't stay in that tomb. He rose up, demonstrating that the sacrifice that he offered in our place was sufficient to cover the payment for our sin. Now, Luke is recounting for us the reality of this. Verse 4, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John, this is John the Baptist, that, that is, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, because they've been waiting for the Messiah to restore all things, right? This, is, this has been the hope of the prophets. This has been what the law was pointing to. All of the Old Testament scriptures pointing toward the question that they're about to ask. They kept nagging him about this question throughout his earthly ministry. And he's like, chill, guys. We've got, you know, we've got some work to do here. And he explained to them how all the things that they were looking for were not quite what they thought. And how all of the panicky things, because they were dealing with conspiracy theories back then too. Everybody's, oh, there's the Antichrist. Oh, there's the Messiah. Oh, there's the Antichrist. Oh, there's the Messiah. It was happening all the time then. And Jesus said, relax. There are going to be a lot of things that happen before the end comes. But when it comes, you're going to know it. So they, they ask him in verse 4, on one occasion while he's eating with them, they do a lot of eating, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're getting fired up. They're getting excited about this. And they ask in verse 6, they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. Everything else that happens, everything that we've just studied, all the details, is the playing out of exactly what Jesus said. Luke said in my first book, I wrote about everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And now Jesus goes up to heaven and his doing and his teaching 
continues in the book of Acts in the person of the Holy Spirit working through the believers. The church is the continuation by God's grace of the work of Christ on earth. He wraps it up in the next two verses. After he said this, after Jesus told them this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight, hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. We need to know that. This isn't just religious mumbo-jumbo. Jesus says to them, you're going to receive the, the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to be my witnesses. Don't stress about when the end comes. You just keep doing what I called you to do. Be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And as they watch him go into the sky, these angels appear to them and say, hey man, it's time to get to work. He's coming back. And they take it so seriously that the very next thing they do, these guys that were cowering in the corner a few chapters ago in the book of Luke, now all of a sudden they're emboldened and Peter's not even wasting time. He doesn't even have time to get excited. I don't know if you noticed that, but what happens is, he says, okay, we get back to Jerusalem, we got work to do. We're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? We're going to be His witnesses, right? We better prepare. So he takes Jesus at His word, and he and the apostles and the believers that are with them appoint someone to fill in for Judas, to complete the team. They got an open roster spot, they, they have a new draft, they get them in there. Because the work is about to start. And then in Acts chapter 2, we see the Holy Spirit come. They're gathered together in an upper room. They're celebrating Pentecost. And as they're celebrating this Jewish ceremony, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, comes over them. And, and the words that we see, sometimes we get hung up on the words. We see the rushing wind and the tongues of fire and all that. But all of these are, are what we might things we might be talking about anthropomorphisms we're, we're seeing this picture of something that that we relate to humanly that is a divine concept it's not that there was a rushing wind but there was a sound like that a, a roaring type sound that they were able to hear <clears throat> and it's not that there were literal tongues of fire upon them but that was the best description that they were able to have and the holy spirit saw fit to include that in the text. So, all that to say, they took this seriously and they moved forward. As we said, the, the book of Acts is still being written today as the Spirit empowers us to testify to Christ. In his commentary on the book of Acts, Dr. J. Vernon wrapped it up by saying this, the record is not concluded. The Holy Spirit continues to work today. The book of Acts will end with the rapture, the coming of Christ for His own. The work of the church has not yet been completed. It is a continuing story. 
what you and I have done in the power of the Holy Spirit will be included in that record. We are writing Acts 29 today. That brings us to our core reality. As we work through this, bear this in mind. The passion, power, and purpose that drove the early church remain its driving force today. The passion, power, and purpose that drove the early church remain its driving force today. As we work through this, I, I, I just feel bad for you guys. Because I had so much fun preparing for this sermon, and you're not going to get to taste most of that. I wish you could have been with me going through the Scriptures, and, and I, I added some limited ones here, but there's so much that God tells us about the church and the, the spiritual reality and the practicality of doing life together and the power of living this life as brothers and sisters in a family that can never be taken away, a forever family, because we are united to Christ in a relationship that can never be undone. The permanence of the family of God is overwhelming and I'm sad that you didn't get to join me for that. But I'm excited that you get the book so you can read it for yourself. We're going to rip through this today. Uh, obviously, as you can see, there are a lot of points there we're going to do. I'm going to do my best to stay disciplined and not get excited. But you know I'm going to get excited about the Word of God. We're going to, we're going to do the best we can here. So we're going to look at this idea, the passion, the power, and the purpose. First, let's talk about the passion that drives uh, the church. The passion of the church is the reality of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. The passion of the church is the reality of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. That's what we are seeing take place here. So as they have now experienced Christ's crucifixion, they saw it. They were with him. They witnessed his resurrection he presented himself to them he walked with them he talked with them he even ate with them post-resurrection they went from religious people faithful devout jews who had a set of beliefs a set of teachings that they held very near to their heart they were they were deeply committed not not passive people in fact we see the description that Jesus gives of some of the apostles uh, as, as we see the, the devout nature of their religious discipline. We'll see that in the Apostle Paul later on. A very sincere and passionate, zealous person in his religion. But the experience, the personal experience of the living God in the person of Jesus Christ changed everything it upended their thinking the passion of the church is the reality of jesus christ and his sacrifice for us notice this seeing the reality of christ radically alters the direction of my life seeing the reality of christ radically alters the direction of my life that's what happens with them they had a knowledge they understood the Scripture. They were even anticipating the Messiah. But when they actually met Jesus, 
when they actually encountered this reality, it was no longer something to aspire to, not a set of rules that they tried to to check off so they can please God, not a set of sacrifices that they check off to cover for the fact that they broke the rules. It's a personal relationship to reality. There is no substitute for a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus offers eternal life to anyone who will receive it. But saving faith involves a confession of the heart, not merely a profession of the mouth. This reality is what drove the early church. Not religion, but a relationship to reality. This is where the church so often in its history, in our history, in our personal history, yours and mine, this is where we get sideways. When we begin to hold to beliefs and we lose sight of the reality of Christ. We think in terms of Christianity as if Christianity is a religion that is worth anything. I want to tell you emphatically, and the Word of God backs this up over and over again, Christianity as a religion is as worthless as every other false religion out there. The idea behind this faith that saves us is not that we're collected as a group who believe a certain way and follow a set of rules and worship a certain way, but we are people of the book who are connected to the Son of God personally by the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us because the love of God was made manifest in His Son while we were yet sinners and not seeking Him. He died for us as a substitute. And he took the full weight of God's wrath for our rebellion on his own shoulders. That is heavy. Seeing the reality of Christ radically alters the direction of my life. They could not do anything else. Once they knew this truth, they saw this reality, everything else became small and pale by comparison Mark this, those who grasp the reality of Christ are eager to live for Him. Those who grasp the reality of Christ are eager to live for Him. The very first thing that happens when someone actually encounters Christ, not religion, but Christ, when you see the living God, it changes you. When Isaiah encounters a vision of God in Isaiah 6, He's so dumbstruck by the holiness of God that he counts himself as dead. But when God offers grace in a a coal from uh, from the altar that is so hot in its holiness that the burning angel that picks it up and brings it has to use tongs. And he touches Isaiah's lips. He says, your sins have been forgiven. God did that. God showed mercy to the sinner And Isaiah could never be the same. And when God says, who will go for us? Isaiah says, me! What else could I do? The same thing happens in the book of Acts. Why do we see the power of God? Because the disciples see the reality of Christ. 
And when that gravity hits them, it's overwhelming. When they grasp the reality of Christ, they're eager to live for Him. And next we see, when I grasp the gravity of God's grace, it eclipses every other thing. When I grasp the gravity of God's grace, it eclipses every other thing. Focus on the reality of Christ frees us from the pull of lesser things. I want to encourage you. Stop trying so hard to stop sinning. Some of you are thinking, what kind of preacher is this? Why would you say that? Stop focusing on your ability, I have a bug up here, on your ability to be strong and have a strong will and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Stop focusing on your thoughts of disappointing God and focus on Him. When you see Christ as most precious, everything else fades into the background. All of your worries, your needs, your shame. Man, I don't have time to maintain this regret when I think about the way that He loves me. When He loves us, the Holy God loves us, how in the world can anything else even matter? The gospel of Christ and the culture of the world are in constant, irreconcilable conflict. We see it here in the book of Acts. We see it in our world today. Mark it down. Burn it into your heart. The gospel of Christ, not the religion of Christianity. Forget about that. The religion of Christianity very often makes people respected. can be used for political gain. I identify with a particular church. It helps me to get forward. People respect me. They look at me differently. Forget about that. The gospel of Christ and the culture of the world are in constant, irreconcilable conflict. If you stand for Christ, if you reflect Christ, if you look like Christ, then the light of Christ will shine from you. And that reflection is offensive. It's harsh to the eyes of those who live in darkness. Also, those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. Those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family. This is why there can never be Lone Ranger Christians. It's not a matter of bouncing around, I'm going to go to church here, I'm going to kind of do this thing, I'm going to have my Facebook post, and me and Jesus got our own thing going, we don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. No, no. If I love Christ, then I love His family. If I am united to Christ, I am united to the family of God. How are you going to ignore your brothers and sisters? This is why it's important for us to gather. And yes, there are sometimes extenuating circumstances where we have to gather in smaller groups or we have to gather virtually. But there is a gathering that is innate to the nature of the church, not the least reason of which is that you can't love others in theory. And if we're commanded to love one another, then you've got to get in the nitty-gritty with irritating, annoying, offensive people, right? 
That's the only way to do it. I can't love somebody that's over in South Korea worshiping together. We're brothers together in the faith. But I'm not going to probably encounter them until we get to heaven. So it's easy to say, oh, I love everybody. It's harder for me to love you. And it's way harder for you to love me because I'm annoying. My, my children are the first to laugh at this. And Stacy, she always points out, and Stacy's laughing. Those who uh, podcast with me understand how annoying I can be. The gospel of Christ and culture are in constant irreconcilable conflict. Those who belong to Christ belong to one another and care for each other as family, which leads us to the last part under the passion that drives the church. Following Jesus means standing firm when the price is high. Following Jesus means standing firm when the price is high. Each of these early disciples, each of the 12 apostles, will face persecution, even martyrdom. Why would they do that? They would not do that if they knew that they were making up this whole resurrection thing. The only way you're going to put yourself in that situation is if you believe deep in your knower that what you're saying is real and true. You're not going to die for a lie. You may or may not be deluded, but you're not going to die for something you know to not be true. These folks were willing to go to the grave. Throughout church history, we've seen the same thing. Uh, many of you know, I've, I've mentioned it a few times, I'm having a blast with some uh, church history podcasts recently, just in, enjoying learning the development of, uh, of doctrine, including false doctrine, development of, of the church, including apostate times during, during church history. But one of the things that becomes really, really clear is how many people in the history of the church are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of Christ. Man, you don't do that for something you, you just make up. You don't do that for something that you don't believe. You've got to know that this is real. What drives the church in the book of Acts? The reality of the person of Christ. What drives us today? The passion of the church is the reality of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us. When we lose sight of that, we lose our backbone. We lose our cornerstone, our foundation. Christ alone is our cornerstone. Next, let's look at the power that drives the church. The power of the church is the reality of the Holy Spirit and His indwelling presence. The power of the church is the reality of the Holy Spirit and His indwelling presence. Now, you might want to, to mark that word indwelling, maybe circle it so that you understand the difference. In the Old Testament, up until Acts chapter 2, people were filled fairly regularly, periodically, regularly, with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come, and He would move in a person, and as God was working out His purposes in that person, the Holy Spirit would fill them. They would respond to the power of the Holy Spirit. Samson is a great picture of that. Samson is a, a worthless leader, just, just a sad and tragic story. But he's been called to lead Israel for that time. And so in the moments when God has called him to do a mighty work, the Holy Spirit 
fills him with the power necessary. We all focus on Samson's strong muscles and his haircut. That's missing the point. The power was the vow that he had with God that he would be used for God. And he kept breaking the vow, but God kept using him. The Holy Spirit came and left. The Holy Spirit came on King Saul, the first king of Israel, and and he empowered him to do mighty things. But when Saul broke covenant with God, the Holy Spirit departed. David in Psalm 51, as he's confessing his sin, he prays, let not your Holy Spirit depart from me. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. David would never need to pray that today. Because in Christ, the Holy Spirit doesn't merely fill, He indwells us. In other words, He dwells in us. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you permanently. Now, He fills you in those times that you are actually listening. To the extent that you are filled with the Spirit, or let me reverse that, to the extent that you are obeying and living under the influence of that Holy Spirit who lives in you, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Kind of like, if I can be so crass, driving under the influence of alcohol, right? It affects your decisions. It affects your reactions. It affects how you actually operate. The influence of the Holy Spirit is very similar. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are living under His influence, He's already in us, but when we are living under His influence, <clears throat> excuse me, it affects everything. Our perception, our thinking, our reactions, everything we do, how we operate is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The power of the church is the reality of the Holy Spirit and His indwelling presence. Mark this down. The church of Christ is empowered by the Spirit of Christ to impact the world for Christ. Some of you may recognize these points as coming from our core realities throughout the series. Very astute of you. The church of Christ is empowered by the Spirit of Christ to impact the world for Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us. Three things we can see about the Holy Spirit in His operation with us. First, the Holy Spirit enables the church to reflect the reality of Christ. The Holy Spirit enables the church to reflect the reality of Christ. What did Jesus say in Acts 1.8? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. You can't be my witnesses without the power of the Holy Spirit. You might be able to say things, you might be able to preach, but you cannot testify. You cannot be a witness of that which you have not experienced. And the Holy Spirit enables us to reflect Christ. In other words, His light shining from us. Second, the Holy Spirit causes believers to mature into an increasingly accurate reflection of Christ. The Holy Spirit causes believers to mature into an increasingly accurate reflection of Christ. If you're in Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, He he has already determined. Check it out now. He has already determined, we see the word predestined here, that if you are in Christ, you will be conformed to the likeness of Christ. It might be now, quick it might be long and hard 
but you will be like Jesus. And if daddy's got to spank you a few times to get you right, he will do what it takes because it is your destiny in Christ by the Holy Spirit to get right. That's an ongoing process. That progressive sanctification, the work of the Holy Spirit in us to make us like Christ will culminate when we're with Him. We're not going to get it perfect here. Because when we get it perfect, we get to go there. In the meantime, God is working it out through us. And He is using us. And the Holy Spirit is enabling that. And He is causing us to desire maturity. If you don't desire to grow more like Christ, you might want to re-examine your relationship to Him. You might be saved, but you're not listening to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is continually knocking, tapping you on the shoulder in that still small voice. He's not going to come and shout and scream. The devil will do all of that. The world will constantly scream. Your your flesh will scream and cry out. The Holy Spirit, He's going to whisper. And He's going to draw you closer to the heart of the Lord. And He does that by building us together in the church. Excuse me. He causes believers to mature into an increasingly accurate reflection of Christ. And and we saw, actually, that that God won't tolerate sin for long in the church. In Acts 5, we saw Ananias and Sapphira, and the Holy Spirit directly intervened. It was a crucial point in church history. And it's the first bad thing that happens in the book of Acts. And they they play the part. They're super religious. They, They want everybody to think they're super religious, so they let people think they're giving more than they're giving. And God responds very quickly in striking them dead during the public worship. That's a very disturbing church service, right? They're immediately dead and buried. God demands more. The holiness of God demands integrity in those who represent Him. God will have a holy church. And it doesn't matter if you've got a a thousand years of apostasy and false doctrine developing, God will reform His church. He will rectify the problem. Very often, as we see in the case of Israel in the Old Testament, by wrecking everything, He's just going to bring in a a sledgehammer and tear the walls out. But He always keeps a a remnant because He does not let His people go. If you are in Christ, it is your destiny to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. The Holy Spirit causes us to do that, to mature into an increasingly accurate reflection of Christ. Third, we see that the Holy Spirit carries out God's purposes in and through His church. The Holy Spirit carries out God's purposes in and through His church. That's what we see through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit moving, people acting at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, ensuring that what God designs comes to pass this happens every single time notice here there is no limit to the holy spirit's impact in and through those eager to live for christ if you've experienced the reality of christ which has made you eager to live for christ the holy spirit comes into you and fills you with the power of god 
That doesn't mean all of a sudden, you know, you, you're sitting there, you pray a prayer, and you feel like, you know, you're Superman. You know, all of a sudden, you're the, the, the greatest of all time, and, and you never have doubts. But the Holy Spirit is in you and working, and there is no limit, none, to what the Holy Spirit is going to do in you. No limit to the Holy Spirit's impact in you and through you when you are eager to live for Christ. It is impossible to impede what God has planned for His people. You cannot stop God. We've seen the passion that drives the church and the power. The reality of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice for us gives us a passion and the power of the Holy Spirit actually living in us empowers us to do what God has in mind for us. Third, we see what it is that God has in mind for us. What is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church is to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships by the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. The purpose of the church is to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships, by the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father. We see this over and over in the book of Acts. It's the constant theme. Everything that we see in 28 chapters is playing out what we read in the first 10 verses. And it's leading up, it's the springboard, the launch pad for what we live today as the embassy of Christ on earth. We are His representatives. This is a powerful purpose. The purpose of Christ is to reflect the reality of Christ. We don't make it. We don't generate light. You don't have light and positivity in you, in yourself. Dump the New Age garbage that lies to us even in the church. We have developed a pagan, therapeutic version of Christian religion that is contrary to what the Bible teaches. Dump it. Stop with the self-esteem, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. You are a wretched sinner worthy of death, as am I. And it's only by the grace of God that we have life. Because Jesus, who has light and life in Himself, has come to us, so that as many as receive Him, to them He gives the right to become children of God. A relationship that can never be undone in a forever family with the presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit actually living in you. Mark this. Those who embrace the reality of Christ are moved to action that reflects Christ. Those who embrace the reality of Christ if you know that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, if you know that by God's grace He has saved you because Jesus took your place and paid everything that could ever be paid, therefore there is no wrath left for you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If that is true for you, you recognize that reality and you have embraced it, then you cannot... This is an ontological fact. If that is true for you, you cannot sit on your hands and not care about living for Christ. Now you can sit on your hands and be miserable because you're not living for Christ. 
because you know too much. But if you're in Christ, you're not just going along, living the same life you lived before. There's a radical change in direction. Now, you might have been a really good person, that, that goody two-shoes like my sister, you know, where you, you, you never do anything wrong, you're always the teacher's pet, blah, blah, blah. All of which still leaves you in hell. Really wanted to get t-shirts made for the church that said, nice guys go to hell. Decided that was in poor taste, so we, would, we didn't do that. But, but seriously, that's the reality. You can be the most respectable, wonderful, successful person in the world and you will spend eternity separated from God if you don't have Him in you because you've received Jesus Christ, you've put your trust in Him as your parachute. There's no other hope. He saves you or you die. And if that is the reality of your life that you have embraced, you can't just sit around and say, hey, thanks, Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. Come on. Let's lose the cutesy Christianity and grasp the gravity of the situation. (sighs) Had to breathe there. All right, when we take the gospel seriously, and that's what we're seeing in the book of Acts, is people taking the gospel seriously. This is what it looks like when the disciples of Christ take the gospel seriously. When we take the gospel seriously, we see every moment through the lens of our mission. When we take the gospel seriously, we see every moment through the lens of our mission. Paul, through all of the hardships that he's going through, it's never an option for him. And never comes into his mind to turn his back on Christ. And never comes into his mind. Now, don't overplay that. I'm sure the devil tried hard to put it in. Those thoughts showed up knocking at the door, but he slammed the door shut. I'm not going for that. In light of everything God did for me, how can I do anything else? Christ died for me. How can I not live for him? I offer my body as a living sacrifice. This is the mentality of Paul. When we take the gospel seriously, we see every moment through the lens of our mission. So when Paul's imprisoned, it's a chance for him to talk about Jesus. When he gets a new trial venue, it's a chance to tell somebody else about Jesus. When he gets shipwrecked on the island of Malta on the way to go to be tried before Caesar, where he intends to tell Caesar about Jesus, They're shipwrecked, and what does he do? You know, don't you? He tells everybody about Jesus. And more than telling, Paul is aware that his actions bear this out. So whether he's doing miraculous things to confirm the gospel, or whether he's living in reaction to circumstances every day like you and I, he sees it through the lens of the purpose of, that God has given him. Why is he here on the planet to glorify God and enjoy him forever? He is here and not in heaven because there are disciples to make. There are people who are lost and dying. And Jesus said, go, tell them, bring them in. Because they can't come to me if they don't know about me. And if you know and you don't tell them, you are sending them to hell. Don't blame God. It's on us. When we take the gospel seriously, we see every moment through the lens of mission. 
Notice this. The church brings Christ's love to people in order to bring people to Christ's love. The church brings Christ's love to people in order to bring people to Christ's love. Why do we do good deeds? Just because we're good deed doers? Is it so that we can you know, rack up points in our philanthropy and, and gain a reputation among people? Is it so that we can earn points with God? Just Let me just run this by you for just a quick sec. If we're talking about the infinite God who created the universe that we can't even figure out how to fully explore yet, we can't get to the end of it. We don't know if it's infinite or finite because we can't figure it out. Our telescopes can't get enough light from far enough away to find the end. That God who made all of this, who is holy, utterly without sin, without shadow in His glorious light, how many good deeds you got to do to impress Him? How good do you have to be to overcome the fact that you're not good. And if you are trying to do that, knowing that your motives are selfish and impure more often than not, is that even good? That's a problem for us. We don't do good deeds. We don't seek justice because this world is the end of things. We don't seek justice just for justice's sake. The biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, is that justice is a reflection of God's character. We are created in the image of God. So we work for justice. We love justice. And we seek mercy. And we walk humbly. Why? Because this is what pleases our Lord. Not so that we can impress Him. Good luck but because that's how we show everybody else what He is like. When Christians do the loving thing in the name of Christ, it's not so people can pat them on the back. In fact, Jesus said, if you, if you do that, good for you. You've already received all the rewards you're going to get. So enjoy that pat on the back. If you... You know, make build wells in Africa, and you cure AIDS, and you somehow figure out how to get every person in America or anywhere else to not think racist thoughts. If you're able to do all that, which you're not, but if you're able to do all that, that that's just wonderful. But if they die apart from Christ, they still go to hell. We could be the most moral country in the world. I see so many patriotic things about, you know, the cross with a flag on it and all these different things. Guys, guys, guys. We do not serve an American God. God is not a Republican or a Democrat or an American. He is other. He is holy. He is beyond. So I'm not telling you not to be patriotic. I'm the last person going to tell you that. What I am telling you all of that will burn up one day. And we will all be left facing God. So when we do right things, when we do good things, when we show love to others, the purpose, as we observe throughout the book of Acts, is not just the thing. 
It's not an end in itself. When the apostles heal people, it's not the healing that's important. It's that they get pointed to Christ. That's why I love this Operation Christmas Child, Operation Christmas Child we've been doing. The, the shoe boxes. What's beautiful about this is not just the boxes, but that the boxes, as you've seen in the videos that we've, that we've played, it's that these boxes carry love to these children so that those who are with them can bring these children to Christ's love. So that while they do enjoy a better experience in the present, it doesn't end there. But they meet the one who is the resurrection and the life. Sorry for preaching a little bit. I got kind of excited. The church brings Christ's love to people in order to bring people to Christ's love. Christ's followers must engage the world as representatives of Christ. The nature of the gospel, however, confronts hard hearts demanding a response. It's not enough for us to just go along and be good people. Again, nice guys go to hell. The gospel grabs us by the heart and if we are encountering God, what He says is the Holy Spirit comes into us and takes that heart of stone and makes it a soft heart of flesh ready to receive Him. When we show love to others, when we engage the world as His representatives, there must, at some point, come a confrontation with the gospel. It's not enough to go to church. You don't come to real life and become a Christian any more than you go to McDonald's and become a hamburger. There has to be a change. There has to be a relationship with Christ. Moving on. When the reality of Christ is reflected inside the church, it will radiate outside the church. When the reality of Christ is reflected inside the church, in other words, when we look like Jesus to one another in here, when we do all of the love, loving one another and, and caring for one another's needs, when we do that in the church, it radiates outside the church. In other words, the world will see Jesus when they see Jesus in us. Notice this. God's love is not restricted by human distinctions. God's love is not restricted by human distinctions as we read in Ephesians and as we see demonstrated throughout Acts. God tears down the dividing wall by the sacrifice of Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, all human divisions are shattered. You are either in Him and fully united or you are outside if you're outside, your eternity separated from God awaits. But His glorious grace offers to you as an outsider the opportunity to be part of His family forever. When the reality of, church is of Christ is reflected inside the church, will radiate outside the church next. God's love is not restricted by humans' distinctions. The church is united by the reality of Christ and committed to reflecting Him together. We've covered this in, in some of the other points. 
so I won't belabor it here, but we do not reflect Him effectively alone. Yes, there's an individual aspect to it. You, as an individual believer, do the thing that makes Christ clear to those around you. However, you were not designed to do it alone any more than this hand I keep gesturing with does anything if it's cut off from my body. It's just going to lay on the floor. Unless you're watching The Adams Family. That's different. But if, if you, that was inappropriate. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. We are members of a body. We operate together. It's important for us to recognize that the church is united by the reality of Christ and committed to reflecting Him together. Next, addressing conflict with wisdom and love reflects Christ to the watching world. Addressing conflict with wisdom and love reflects Christ to the watching world. Paul and Barnabas, best buddies, they're, they're on their missionary journey. They have a conflict. It was such a sharp conflict that it separates them, and yet they handled it with wisdom and love in such a way that the Holy Spirit used even that conflict to strengthen the church. So now instead of one missionary team, you have two. And they do not sever their relationship. Their ties are not severed. They just have a different vision for how to go forward. And God uses both. When we figure this out and we live together in the peace and unity that comes in Christ, the watching world sees it. Life in Christ involves working together to know and to reflect Him better every day. That's what we do as we work together. Additionally, the more intimately we know Christ, the more powerfully we show Christ. If you're having problems with conflicts in your life a lot of the time, right? you may have a problem person to deal with, sure. But if you're repeatedly, repeatedly finding that you have conflicts with people over and over again, you might want to look at yourself because the, the variable here may not be the other people. So we might need to be looking at this, because the, the more intimately we know Jesus, the more powerfully we reflect Him, we show Him, and it shows up in our lives when we grow in Him. Christianity is not a religion to be practiced, but a reality to be lived. It's not a religion to be practiced, but a reality to be lived. Write this one down. The local church has a global mission, and every member has a role in it. The local church has a global mission, and every member has a role in it. While we do life together here in the local church, we as the local church are also part of a bigger family. And there is an entire world full of people who need Jesus, and we are all a part of that mission. For some of you, you are called to go out there to some place that's not your home to carry forth the torch for the rest of us. For the rest of us. It's your job to send them. For every person, you have a role in this global mission if you are in the church, if you are in Christ. So you need to be a goer or you need to be a sender, but you need to be moving. You need to be part of it. The local church has a global mission and every member has a role in it. 
Lastly, we see God's power and grace are displayed in us when we reflect the reality of Christ amid opposition and persecution. God's power and grace are displayed in us. In other words, we are His showcase. People see God on display when we reflect the reality of Christ in the midst of opposition and persecution. When it gets hot... Do you look more like Christ or less like Christ? When the reality of Christ is gripping us and we grasp the gravity of this and and we are listening to the Holy Spirit who lives in us and is giving us all the power that we can possibly dream of to be able to do what God intends and opposition comes and persecution comes, man, that's a great thing if you're trying to refine gold. All the junk gets burned up. Same is true in our Christian lives. We are refined by the fire. It purifies us so that we come through shining like gold. All right, as we wrap this up here, the book of Acts is still being written today as the Holy Spirit empowers believers to testify to the reality of Christ until His glorious return. The passion, power, and purpose that drove the early church remain its driving force today. We see throughout the history of the church that whenever this fails to be true of the church, the church fails to be true to Christ, its head. It fails to function as the church, as the embassy of Christ in a hostile yet needy world. Paul gets so fired up about this idea about the reality that drives the church as he's writing in the book of Ephesians, this letter to the church there. He gets so fired up about it that that he bursts out in exuberant praise after starting out with praise be to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he goes on about how he, he chose us in Christ. He reached out and took us from ourselves, if you will. Not against our will, but replacing our will with a new will, a soft heart. And he gets so fired up in the first two chapters of talking about the church and what it means to have our identity changed that when we get to the end of chapter 3, before he starts talking about how to live like a Christian, he just kind of gets lost. I, I can identify with this. He gets so excited about what God is doing in the church that it overflows with this ebullient, exuberant praise. Here's what he says. Let's, let's close with this. In in Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21, Paul says, Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Wait a minute here. I, I, I can't let that go. I think you hear him saying that God can do a lot of stuff. I feel like you hear him saying that God can be all you need. That's not what he's saying. Let me slow this down. Now to him, who's him? God. Now now to this God who is 
able, he is powerful, he is able to do, to act, to intervene, to be involved. He's not out there passive like, uh, like deism where he, you know, he set everything in motion, he winds up the watch and kind of lets it go. No, no, he is, he is doing and he is able to do, but check this out, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. In other words, he is not all you need. He is more than you can even imagine about needing. You can't even think about thinking about how much more God is. How much more? Immeasurably more. You can't measure how much more God is able to do than you're able to imagine. That's a big God. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably, unthinkably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. What's God's power at work within us? We've been talking about it. It's His Holy Spirit. It's God in you. The power of God in the presence of God in you and me. Ah! No wonder he bursts out in praise. My head wants to explode from this. But it's not just in you. The, the Greek you here, he's not talking about Zyger. It's at work in y'all. This is plural. It's at work in in the church, He is at work in the church. The Holy Spirit of God in you is the Holy Spirit of God moving in the church, able to do immeasurably more than all you can even begin to think about asking. Oh my goodness. And He does this according to His power and is at work within us. To Him be the glory in the church we are the glory of God. How does God get glorified? In the church. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus who is the head of the church. Throughout all generations. Forever. And ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we, as we close our service today, we are in awe of you. Father, forgive me for any, any triteness or cuteness that I may have, have allowed to creep in today in delivering your word. Forgive me for that. Father, you are so beyond our imagining, and yet you have chosen to set your love upon us and out of all the people in the history of the world, you have orchestrated things in our life to be here hearing this word today. You have chosen us. Lord, receive our worship. Change our hearts that we, as your people as your church might be a church ready for you waiting like a bride waiting for her groom that we might be overcome by you
that we might be so filled with an intimacy and a passionate love for you that everything else just seems weak and pale. Father, we know that we are writing this book, this last chapter of Acts, until the day that you return to restore the kingdom, to restore all things, and to set everything right. Father, let us, let us be your hands and feet. Even so, Lord, come quickly. We pray this in the name of your precious Son, by the power of your indwelling Spirit, for your eternal glory. Amen.